DJ and PK reminding you, when the Utah Jazz win, you win with Little Caesars. And on July 9th, you win when the Zone Sports Network is at Little Caesars in Vineyard. Join the big show from 2 to 7 at 554 North Mill Road in Vineyard. Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider, coming up at 9 o'clock. Jason Whitlock, columnist for Outkick.com, will join us here in a few minutes, uh, just a minute or two. Uh, Steve Cleveland, we have him on every week. And PK, every week apparently, he says, yuck. And there haven't been games in forever. What are we going to talk about now? He's always got a story. There'll be something. I have confidence. Actually, I want to talk to him about the opportunity to, we talked about it a little bit last night on television, for these coaches, you know, are, how, what can they now say? What is acceptable in their coaching? All right, we'll talk with him about that coming up in an hour. DJ and PK, right now, time to welcome in Jason Whitlock, columnist for OutKick.com. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Please visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Jason, good morning. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, I know we only have a few minutes with you because you've probably got a bunch of these lined up. So uh, no warm-up. We'll jump right into the deep end of the pool. I'm a little... uh, I'm a little confused as to how this is going to go going forward. I see the cry for uh, social change, and it does seem like there's more awareness, but I'm old enough to remember the riots after Rodney King, and I'm thinking, what is really going to change? Then I wake up one day and see the Washington Redskins are legitimately in the process of thinking of changing their name, and what are they going to change it to? And I didn't think I was going to live to see that, how optimistic are you that things are really going to change in a real, not get perfect, but are going to change for the better in a real way, given what you've seen the last couple of months? Uh, I'm not as optimistic as, as you, I don't think, because, look, I, I think there's going to be some symbolic changes. And, look, I was always someone that thought uh, the Washington Redskins should change their team name. But, it was it wasn't a strongly held passion because I don't know I haven't fully figured out where Native Americans stand on this, and there are conflicting reports about how Native Americans feel. Uh, so th- this is an issue and a passionate issue I think for a lot of outsiders who are ashamed that the team has this nickname, but but so. I think it's good that the name is going to change, but I'm not sure if that is a substantive change that really changes the context and content or the just injustice in America. I'm not sure if that's going to be fully changed by some of these public gestures and symbolic gestures that are taking place. I'm not only old enough to remember the 92 riots. I was working for a Los Angeles newspaper in 1992 and brought a transistor radio to the to a game I was covering on uh, Wednesday, no, April 29, 1992, to make sure I drove the appropriate way home and didn't go through areas when the verdict came out. And my wife taught at Washington High, which is right there in South Central and all that stuff, so I got a lot of experience on that. I'm wondering, I'm all for this type of social awareness that's being raised, but I'm wondering how much good is it going to do, you know, the Black Lives Matter painted on the court, the messages on the back of their jerseys, how much is good is it going to do at the ground level to help people? I don't see it helping. I'm someone that's not a fan of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that uh, it's a front. I think it's a political organization. I don't think its true concern is about the life of black people. Uh, Look, there are hundreds of black people getting shot every weekend across America. I think I just read a CNN article that Five children under the age of 11 were killed across this country, black children across this country, just this weekend. No one cares. No one speaks out. Listen, I had a cousin killed by police violence in 2012 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, the, The issue that they allege to be concerned about is one that hits home for me. But... I don't think that's the pandemic plaguing young black men. I I think the data, the facts, the reality is crystal clear 
that there's an enormous amount of gun violence in poor inner-city black communities. Uh, I grew up in one. A lot of my family grew up in one. Uh, we did not spend a, a lot of time worried about, oh, my God, are the police going to shoot us? We worried about the young men in the neighborhood that were involved in gang violence. That's what the real killer is and the real issue. And there appears to be no focus or energy on that. The, the stats, the reality is that you're just as likely to be killed by a bolt of lightning as you are by the police. That, that's just a fact. That's not me choosing a side. That's just me stating a fact. And so I just think a lot of this is misguided. I think a lot of it is political. It's a tool used by uh, apparently the Democratic Party to rally support for them politically. And that's why these things bubble up so much uh, in a presidential election cycle. And then if you just go look at the people who founded Black Lives Matter, they've been trained in Marxism. It certainly has a communist socialist influence to it. And, you know, for me, someone that grew up a Christian, someone who uh, identifies as a Christian, if you understand communism, if you understand Marxism, it's an anti-religious political movement. And so I'm just not comfortable with Black Lives Matter. I think that LeBron James and a lot of the athletes, uh, particularly the Nike athletes, use Black Lives Matter as a tool to promote Nike's agenda. Nike is heavily dependent upon China and, you know, cheap labor in Asia. And China and communist-run countries love this sort of smear of America as the most racist place on earth, and it's just not that's not supported by the facts. America is a worldwide leader when it comes to dealing with the issue of race. Obviously, we're not perfect; uh, no one is. But if you compare us to the rest of the world, we're doing better than everybody else. So, when you share these opinions uh, with people in the sports world, especially with elite athletes, what kind of feedback do you get from them? Well, I, most of these athletes are controlled and don't engage with people who push back against them. And so, you know, I, I can't say that, you know, with the with the LeBron James, Colin Kaepernick guys at the forefront. But you know, when you talk to the athletes that used to appear on my television show and athletes that I'm friends of, so many of them have a social media understanding of America's problems. And that's the shallowest end of the pool. And social media is where uh, racial division is stirred on a daily basis. Racial division is rewarded over social media. And so when you have a not just athletes, but a country and a media that's addicted to social media, the shallow end of the pool, the end of the pool where racial division is rewarded. It's hard to get them to understand in a 15-minute hour conversation, three-hour conversation, three-week conversation. It's hard to get them to understand, like, these are the facts, these are the reality, because we all have been trained to be addicted to our smartphones and the information that comes from our smartphones. And these social media apps are a big part of our smartphones. And they're misleading and misguiding the public and stirring racial division. And so it's very hard to get people to fully understand what's going on. I spent 23 years working for daily newspapers in three states, another 18 years in electronic media. I don't even trust the media anymore, even though I'm still a member of it. What has happened? Uh, I completely agree with you. I'm glad to hear someone say that. As someone, again, I joined the mainstream media in 1990. Uh, when I got out of college at Ball State, and I don't trust the mainstream media either. I think the issues over the last 10 years have been made more acute uh, in terms of there's been a dramatic pivot from the mainstream media, clickbait journalism, and social media-driven journalism. Those of us in the media are addicted to Twitter. And it's like I, I make no secret of the fact that being involved in the media, your bosses, the executives, the corporate people seem to be controlled by social media. So you have no choice but to join Twitter and try to build a following 
because your bosses are evaluating you based off your Twitter feed. How many followers do you have? That impacts your value to, to your corporation. And once now that we all have this addiction, there's certain things that social media rewards. And it doesn't reward facts. It doesn't reward good grammar. It doesn't reward nuance and context. It rewards polarization and divisiveness. And it rewards race baiting. And so that's why you see so many people in the media, and that's why you see so many media narratives that are strictly out to drive clicks, out to drive emotion, and are racially polarizing. We've been going, and this coincides, this whole Black Lives Matter movement coincides with the rise of social media and Twitter's influence over the mainstream media. And it's only on Twitter where I think in 2019, nine unarmed black men were killed by the police, according to the Washington Post. Nineteen unarmed white men were killed by the police in 2019, according to the Washington Post. Only on Twitter, with the police having hundreds of millions of encounters a year, could we take nine deaths and portray it as a pandemic and, oh, my God, we must do everything to stop it? Only on Twitter could that exist, and then because of our addiction to Twitter, we spread it through the mainstream media. We do television shows based on it. We do uh, written series in major newspapers about this nine-person pandemic that's wiping out uh, black America. We're killing black men unarmed nine times a year or 12 times a year, whatever it is. I just don't think that's a genocidal plot. I think that's a byproduct of we have a heavily armed society over here because of the Second Amendment, and the police have millions of encounters, and when they go to high-crime areas where a lot of poor inner-city communities are high-crime and they're looking for violent criminals, there's going to be tension and there's going to be mistakes. And obviously what Derek Chauvin did in Minneapolis is a criminal offense. It's a heinous one. Uh, but I, there's no proof Derek Chauvin, the policeman in Minneapolis, was driven by race. When I look at that, that's an abuse of power is what I saw. I didn't, there's no proof he did that because George Floyd was black. But over Twitter, and because Twitter drives everything, we can assign motive to Derek Chauvin without any proof. Again, because all that was that we know fact is an abuse of power, and the guy needs to be charged, put away. It's heinous what he did. But there's no proof he was driven by race. But we'll say it. We'll exploit and stir racial division within this country to the point of riots and violence and looting that's threatening to tear down this country, the media just doesn't care about facts. And and corporate America doesn't seem to care because the media, at the end of the day, reports to corporate America and their corporate sponsors, and they seem to be financing this. We're living in a very sad time where the truth has been made irrelevant and inconsequential, and that's you can't have a healthy republic. You can't have a healthy country if that's the case. Uh, Jason, I know you got to run, but just two things I would add here is that uh, the consolidation of the media ship of the media fewer own, the ownership is limited, and fewer people own more things. I think that's been a factor. And I think you're right about bosses tracking the numbers. But we got a lot of bosses who didn't grow up and get promoted through the business, and so hey, they know I, the numbers. I, I, you make a hell of a point, and, and that's, I'll end on this note. Look at what we've done through the coronavirus pandemic in terms of shutting down all these businesses. The small businessman is being run out of America. Everything's going to be Walmart, Costco, major chains, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this is what concerns me in terms of what, America was built on the backs of small businessmen, small entrepreneurs, and we're seeing them destroyed right now under the excuse of, and look, I, the coronavirus is serious, I'm, but 
I'm not sure if shutting down America hasn't created more problems than the coronavirus. Uh, guys, thank you for the time. We'll do it anytime. Uh, appreciate the, the questions and the conversation. Jason Whitlock joining us right here. And if you like what you just heard from Jason Whitlock, you can consider becoming an OutKick VIP for just $99 a year. You get exclusive access to Clay Travis's national radio show and events Clay and Jason sponsor. OutKick.com is the fearless and authentic voice of sports fans nationwide. DJ and PK, there is Jason Whitlock. PK, we got a couple minutes here before the break. That was a lot. It's always a lot when you hear Jason Whitlock. It's not surprising if you've seen him. He says stuff, and he's a lightning rod, and people love it, and people hate it. And some people love some stuff and hate other stuff, uh, but it's rarely boring. Would you like to jump in anywhere? (laughs) Well, that's what I like about Jason Whitlock is I don't agree with him on everything he says, but I don't care about agreeing. It's about understanding. It's about thinking. It's about pondering. Those are the reasons why I consume Jason Whitlock as he's moved from platform to platform in different companies is because he makes me think. It's not about whether I agree with him or not. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. That's the point. It's about thinking and all these things. Yeah, we're being force-fed some stuff, particularly, and he's got his opinions on the Black Lives Matter, and, and I guess that as a black man, which he is obviously, that's something that's viewed as controversial. But to me, uh, one of the things is is the media, man. I, I'm, I grew up in the business, and I don't trust it. Where? What's your agenda? What party are you registered with? Every time we have somebody on, I go look. We've had Washington columnists, Washington Post columnists, and people from back there. I go look and see where they, what party they registered. And and it's not necessarily fair, but I view it as suspicious. What's your motive? Where are you going with this? You know, there's been talk of. I just read this morning. Oh, this virus is going to end November fourth if Biden gets elected. That's oh my gosh, and there's some truth to it. And it just drives me crazy. I grew up in a business where you were not identified with a political party. I never have ever once registered with a political party. That's the way I was brought up in this business, is you're supposed to be neutral as much as you possibly can, recognizing that there's all sorts of biases that I have. Everybody has them. I'll go to my grave saying we've all got biases. Anybody says they don't, they're ridiculous. But nevertheless, we're... What are we being fed here in this social media aspect of it? And Colin Kaepernick going on Twitter on, on, on July 4th and tweeting out what he tweeted. Basically, this country sucks. And it's like, oh, my gosh. And, you know, and he's being financed by Nike. What's the deal there? Who do I believe? Who do I don't believe? I don't know. I don't know anymore. You know, when, uh, when I got into radio... The limit was you could only own uh, two radio stations in the town, one AM, one FM. And there's a lot of the liberal conservative divide, and there's a lot of you know Democrats versus Republicans. But what they have in common, and I took a class in college about always look at what they have in common. The whole thing was on the common assumptions that both parties are built on. And one thing they had in common is that regardless of who controlled the White House and who controlled Congress, the limit on what you could own kept getting raised. And it went to, you can own a third station, you can own seven stations, uh, TV, radio combos. And now we have these huge companies that own tons of newspapers, that own tons of radio stations, that own tons of TV stations. And, you know, obviously Channel 2 is owned by Sinclair. Now, when I uh, got hired at Channel 2, it was owned by a local family. And then it got owned by some people from New York who were trying to put together a chain. And then we became West, part of Westinghouse. And then we became part of CBS. And, you know, there, there have been multiple changes over the years. But even inside Sinclair, I think people who work for Sinclair, if they wanted to talk on the record, which they may or may not want to, but I'll do it here. You know, we had a change in the CEO. And I think people would say, well, it's different now than it was X amount of time ago, you know, three years ago. And, you know, there were a lot of stories done about... Uh, you know, Sinclair stations all have to run this story, that story, these features over time. And that started changing when we got a new CEO. Now it could change again when we get another CEO. But you have that kind of reach when you can own, I don't even know how many stations they own, 100 and whatever across the country. Uh, you, that didn't happen. The time you're talking about, PK, you, you know, people were owning like seven TV stations. 
And then it got raised to, I don't even know all the numbers, 12 or 14 or something like that. And it keeps getting raised. And then it was like you could own TV stations, but they couldn't cover more than 40% of America. So the reach of a handful of people has gotten much more powerful. Who are those people? Oh, for sure. Who are those people? They control the shots at the top. And not necessarily. Sometimes it's with what they tell you to do. Sometimes it's with what you think you're told to do, and you just make the decision on your own. And there have been multiple books written about that. We can't sort all that out now. But uh, there's plenty out there to read if you want to. And, and, it, doesn't, and it doesn't all agree with itself. <laughs> there's different opinions across the board on it. But, but I think that's been a big factor. Uh, when, you, when you look at stuff and okay. you say you don't trust something, I would go back to the ownership. And it's not as grassroots and it's much more corporate. It's changed a lot over 30 years. 40 years. Oh, yeah. When, yeah. I, when I got here, the Tribune was owned by the McCarthy family. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a long time ago, <laughs> Right. <man>. Yeah. <laughs> well, the owners, I mean, they literally own it. They get to make it what they want it to be. And, uh, you know, the, the, the people come and go, but the owners call the shots. And now some owners decide not to call the shots, and they let they let the staff kind of run with it, and they're, they're more of a distance. And that, that exists out there, too. People don't want to think it does, but it does. And I would say that, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, inside yeah. Sinclair, I think we're probably feeling that. I think it's more, hey, you need to do what makes you successful in your community. I think, you know, just being a guy sitting in a newsroom, I feel a little more of that. I'm not privy. There are multiple layers of discussions I'm not privy to. Man, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little tiny cog in a big, gigantic machine, you know. But, uh, but it doesn't feel as top-down and heavy as it did. Uh, but you oh, know, I who, agree, man. But who knows? Uh, you know, yeah. two, three, five years from now, you know, somebody else could be the CEO or what, and it could be a different deal. Yeah. I don't know. Well, the McCarthys were and still are a very important fabric of our community. And Tom McCarthy, I would, I trusted him. I trusted him as an owner. I trusted him as a man, and I met with him frequently, and got to know him, got to like him, like to like him a lot. I feel like I worked for the golden age of the Tribune. And that's long gone. And then there's another thing here. You know, I think that. It, and you, and you got to be careful because if you say stuff, you could lose your job, you could lose your scholarship, could lose whatever it is that you you have. Uh, but I think there's a faction of people here are saying, wait a second, what about all this violence? Five kids, Jason Whitlock tweeted it out. I just yep. looked at it. Oh yeah, yeah. Five kids, five children, five black children were killed this weekend. Where's the outrage? Little, Where's it? It, it, little kids, good. little kids sitting yeah. at home in their house. Yeah. Come you know, on. Where's the outrage? Elementary, elementary gotta, school. We got to stop this. I mean, this is, this is crazy. Don't, you know, these lives matter. And, and he says, and I don't know the statistic, but apparently he's got it. You're as likely to be killed by uh, lightning as you are by a police officer. I mean, that, that, that's crazy. And, and it, it doesn't disregard anything. If, if the one person is, is harmed through any form of police brutality, that, that's too money, obviously. But where's this outrage? It's like it's selective outrage. And I think he, he's allowed to speak it for obvious reasons. Somebody like myself, I can't really say it. Uh, and I get labeled. Full disclosure, Yach, did I look at you and say, I can't say this. He while J- while Jason yeah. was, you know... <laughs> On fire, going as hard as he was going DJ at any point. And during that looked to me and said, "I cannot say that. I cannot air. say that. That would not be okay for me to say. There would be a meeting. A I wouldn't speak a lot. I would listen a lot, and then at the end, I'd be very sad." That's exactly. But your point is well taken. I think. There. I think one of the things that I did read, and to credit social media, I did read it on social media. PK was that what is uh, what is being lost in the national discussion now is. Um, the the value and this this gets to parsing all kinds of language but it's the value of all black lives lost that there's this focus and and the video was powerful so of course there is this focus on police brutality but when you focus on all black lives matter disproportionately the story was saying disproportionately now we know from the coronavirus if you are uh hispanic or you are black you are more likely to die if you are white for several reasons, maybe some of which we understand, maybe some of which we don't, but we know you are more likely to die. Where is the outrage over that? Where is the fight to protect the people who are losing their lives now because of those statistics? And that's why there's so many layers. It's so complicated. 
And it's not the same in every community, although it might be similar across several communities at the same time. It's going to take a long time to change all this. And that's where we started the interview with Jason Whitlock is we all want change and, and, you know, we want what we want it now. It's a microwave society, right? We want what we want and we want it now. But a lot of this stuff, how long is this going to take to change? How optimistic should we be? How realistic should we be? And back to what we were saying about Rudy Gobert, although that was a championship and the discussion was different. It's like, if you don't talk about the goal and set the goal, do you reach the goal? And it seems like the odds are less, but we want it. We want it now. And maybe to some degree, sports hurts with that because, you know, we know when we sit down in two or three hours, these storylines play out. And we know over the course of, depending on the season, six to eight to nine months in Major League Soccer, you know, these stories play out over a course of a year. And we're looking at something. Some athletes have said this. It's like, well, everything isn't going to be right in 20 years, but will we have moved the ball down the field in 20 years and made progress on any of these issues. And the thing Jason Whitlock didn't bring up that I think looms large over all of this is uh, he did bring up the uh, Second Amendment and and uh, gun policy and being a heavily armed country, but you know the attitude we take towards drugs and illegal drugs and how they're policed and you know that's wrapped up. I think if we could dig into the numbers, I think we'd find that's wrapped up in uh, you know these kids dying in Chicago sitting in their homes watching TV or laying in their bed or playing in their house and they're in elementary school. And if we trace it back, are we going to get back to our country's drug policy? I don't know all those stories, but my gut instinct says we probably are. But if we're not even addressing that, to go back to Rudy Gobert again, you know, if you're not addressing it, how can you possibly be reaching the goal? All right, we'll leave it right there. Steve Cleveland's coming up at 9 o'clock. You can hit us up on Twitter and react, even though social media might be part of the problem. There it is, DJ and PK on Facebook, David DJ James on Twitter. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Basketball is back. The Zone Sports Network is keeping you up on all the latest news with the Utah Jazz in the NBA. This is a back-to-basketball update. Oh, he never looked at the net. Presented by Zions Bank. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone and the Zone Sports Network. Utah Jazz are scheduled to travel to Orlando tomorrow to begin their on-site preparation for the resumption of the season. They play the New Orleans Pelicans on July 30th. Laker assistant coach Lionel Hollins will not travel to Orlando. He'll remain in California. Due to underlying medical conditions, he'll work with the team remotely. The Milwaukee Bucks and Sacramento Kings have shut down their practice facilities. After receiving results of a recent round of testing for COVID-19, they joined the Nuggets, Heath, Clippers, and Nets as teams who have shut down the facilities ahead of traveling to Orlando in the past week. This back-to-basketball update is brought to you by Zions Bank. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. For a bank that understands your business, Zions Bank is for you. Now let's get this party started. This is Hans Olsen and Scotty G on the Zone Sports Network. I want to apologize to the young men I have coached and I'm coaching currently. And I express to them the complete embarrassment I feel for having hurt them and my fellow colleagues in any way. I apologize. Obviously a very emotional Morgan Scally. There is a question of can he do his job moving forward? Recruiting is the number one issue that he has to worry about. But I still believe that he can walk into a minority's home with this one moment seven years ago included, but his entire history of the corners that he's built, the safeties that he's built, the men that he's built. And he can get the backing of guys like Sharif Shah. And he can get the backing of his current players. And I believe that he can continue to do his job in recruiting. Hanson Scotting. We from 10 to 2 on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. I think that LeBron James and a lot of the athletes, uh, particularly the Nike athletes, use Black Lives Matter as a tool to promote Nike's agenda. Nike is heavily dependent upon China and, you know, cheap labor in Asia and China and communist-run countries love this sort of smear of America as the most racist place on earth, and it's just not—that's not supported by the facts. America is a worldwide leader when it comes to dealing with the issue of race. Obviously, we're not perfect; uh, no one is. But if you compare us to the rest of the world, we're doing better than everybody else. 
DJ PK brought to you by WCF Insurance, reminding you to be careful out there. That's Jason Whitlock, columnist for Outkick.com, who just joined us in the last segment. Uh, PK, you've had a, uh, a commercial break to think about it, and I was curious because I was thinking about it during the commercial break, and we're socially distanced now, so we're not in the studio and we can't talk about it like we could have a few months ago. Um, and I'm curious... All the people that you worked with, that you interacted with in L.A., uh, that your wife, you've talked about your wife teaching at an inner city school and from students to staffers to administrators, people she interacted with, you know, how how popular, how, uh, not popular is the wrong word, uh, how many people would agree with a large segment of what Jason Whitlock just said? How many people see it a different way based on their per, their personal experience? I mean, you can't really... You can probably give us a taste of it. You can't perfectly capture it, you know, this far removed. But you talk about how a lot of us live in white neighborhoods, in white communities, interact with largely white people here in Utah. Yes. Would the Whitlock stuff, would the stuff he just said, how well would that go over? What percentage of people would agree with it? Can you give us any feel for that at all? Or is that just too big an all-encompassing question to put on you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a burden right there. Yeah, I know, <laughs> so, I know it. I know it is, but at the same time, I know you get frustrated when we talk about race here because uh, m- multiple things. One, you lived in a very different, the, the, the demographics are just different where you lived. And not just where you lived, but in the radius where you kind of fanned out and covered high school football, which if you know LA, you know, there were parts of LA you went to, there were parts of LA you never went to because it's such a massive place and your paper didn't cover these other places, right? So you're not necessarily going to big parts of Riverside and San Bernardino. And that's a lot no, of people. No, 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 no. That's a lot of people. Um, and yet you get, you get frustrated and I think, on multiple levels, one, uh, maybe you don't agree, obviously, with what you hear. That's at the first level. But on the second level, you sometimes I hear your voice and I think he doesn't even know how to have a conversation with us because we don't have the shared experiences to go forward to get to, you know, to build on to the next point and to the next point because we don't even have the shared experiences. And you don't even know how to explain it to people. I can just see the frustration in your body language. Like, I want to explain this to you, but... I don't see how I possibly can. You got you got no frame of reference here. And so I was thinking that during the break about the stuff Whitlock said, some of which I think, you know, some people are going to sign off on and some of it, obviously, people are not going to sign off on. But it's not, uh, you know, to overuse an overused phrase, it's not necessarily that black and white either. You know, he said something here. I, I totally buy that. He said something over here. I don't buy that at all. Uh, why don't I buy that at all? You know, and, and you think a million things, but I, 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 yeah. I, I'm sure you were thinking about it during the break. You mm-hmm. didn't just suddenly, oh, yeah. you know, go off and start wondering about, you know, whatever about the NBA playoffs in August. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, well said, uh, you know, you're one of the smartest people I know. I've said that for years. You're a critical thinker. You're a deep thinker. And, uh, you know, you, we've been around each other. We don't need to be in the same room talking during commercial breaks because we just have the same, wavelength of long along the line we're thinking or we even if we're thinking different things we know what the other guy's thinking that's what you get it's like a marriage we got going here 18 years like this i mean it's so intense our our working relationship that we have uh, that we know what other what the other guy's thinking even without even being in the same room but yeah it's been frustrating to me because I know my wife did teach at Washington Prep, which is right there in the heart. You know, when the when the riots hit, they used their school as a place to store artillery and a place for where people slept and all and those things. And I covered uh, Carson, Narbonne, and Ban- uh, Banning High and San Pedro High, and that's L.A. City. So they played. Crenshaw, they played Washington, they played Dorsey. I've been to all of those places many times over, and my wife coached, uh, so uh, she coached basketball, uh, volleyball, softball, tennis, and you got to know people, and and so many great people that live in the South Central area, and then you'd see, you'd see the struggles that they had to endure. It's far greater than any struggle that I had to endure. And you see it, and it's heartbreaking that so many of these folks are born into situations where, man, the odds are just so overwhelming for them to overcome 
and to live successful lives and the, the, the cyclical nature of poverty that is there. And, you know, they had uh, discussions, uh, her fellow PE teachers that were all African-American and, and one lady in particular, Sylvia was her name, her female teacher, and how they'd have at the start of the semesters, they'd have talks about not getting pregnant and how that's going to lead to uh, a, a cycle of poverty. Well, I can assure you they're not having those discussions at Corner Canyon each semester. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not happening. And, and players that you coach, uh, that uh, they have to take leave of absence because they're pregnant. And, and I just bring that up as the one example. Um, and I, I, I make sure that everyone understands I don't have the answers to these issues. But so many, my point is there's so many great people and that, that's where we, we need to help. And, and, if, and if we have a Black Lives Matter thing painted on the basketball court, that's great. Go ahead and do it. I've got no problem. Put whatever you want on your jersey, uh, you know, as long as it's not obscene. Uh, fine. I'm, I'm all for that. I've got no problem with that. Uh, but what is being done at the ground level? That's my big thing. What are we doing at the ground level to help people? It's why every year when Gail Miller does that thing and we go over to Hidden Valley and we have Salt Lake Community College, the president, she comes on. And sometimes if Mrs. Miller is there, she comes on and talk about what they're doing. Because that's helping folks at the ground level, man. That's making differences in lives. And that's my big thing. Is what we, we can put all the, the black squares on social media and Instagram that we want. And we can live high on the east side and do all these things and, and say we're for it. But unless we're actually doing something, I mean, doing something at the ground level. And I like to think personally, I'm doing something at the ground level. I don't talk about it. But I like to think that I'm doing something at the ground level to improve at least one life. Whether it, may, whether it's a, whether it happens or not remains to be seen. But at least I'm trying. And that's where I'm at with this stuff. And, you know, these children that, that Jason Whitlock tweeted out here this morning, their lives matter just as much as anybody else's. What are we doing about this stuff that's going on? I don't have the answers to it. I'm not saying I got any answers. I'm not preaching to anybody. I just want to know, what are we doing to help all people at all times? That's, that's some of the stuff that frustrates me because I saw so many quality, top-notch people. They deserve a fair shake, and they're not getting it, and it just drives me nuts. <sighs> You know, I was uh, I was surprised, and I wasn't to hear um, to hear Jason Whitlock unload on uh, Black Lives Matter the way he did. Um, some of the specifics surprised me, but overall, you know, he's known for controversial takes, and he sure. likes he likes to go after sacred cows. You know, some That's people are just, <laughs> right. Some people are just built that way. I mean, you know, you know, if you're going to have them on, it's going to be something, but you don't know exactly what. But one thing that's come up the last few months is uh, it goes back to what I said about, uh, um, you know, you trying to discuss race here with people. And you've got these experiences from, you know, when you lived in Pedro and then uh, I don't know what it was, kind of a 10 to 15 mile. If you look at Google Maps, you can kind of take a, a 10 to 15 mile radius around that as you cover high schools and interact with a lot of coaches and players and principals and, and then your wife's teaching experience. And one thing we've been taught is, uh, one thing we've been told in these last few months is listen more, you know, yeah. listen more because you don't have all the experiences to know the background, of all these people's stories. And I'm just thinking no. of some of the people I listen to in this community uh, who don't look like me, who have different life experiences. And I'm thinking how many of them right now, what percentage of what Jason Whitlock says are they buying and why? And that was running I through my mind some. when he was talking. You know, <laughs> and and you can't dismiss the profit motive and you can't dismiss what role does Nike play here and how much of a role do they play? I mean, you, you can't dismiss that, you know, but also at the same time, you know, individual people and what they go through on a daily basis. I'm thinking, I don't know that that's lining up with what I'm hearing from Jason Whitlock right now. You know? In what way? He just kind of dismissed, in my mind, he dismissed the whole Black Lives Matter thing as, um, you know, it was it was political and it was corporate, you know, and it didn't really speak to that average black person on the street and what they go through with systemic racism and not just police brutality, but um, 
injustice? You know, do they get, are they more likely to get pulled over for a broken taillight? How do they get talked to when they pulled over? How do they get intimidated? Even if there's no physical violence, you know, and you talk to individual people and they're like, well, you don't know because you don't get talked to like that during a traffic stop. Oh, for sure. You know, hundred percent. And so when he dismissed the whole thing as political and was saying it was a tool of the democratic party and, you know, particularly Nike, well, Nike does use a lot of overseas labor. I mean, that's been well-documented. There've been whole stories written about that, you know? So it's like, I don't want to say that that's not a part of the story because it is. But when I go out and talk to somebody that I work around and they tell me how their life is and it's like, well, black lives matters to them in a way that's personal and how they get seen and get interacted with. And not, Everybody cares about that. You like to label them freaks. You know, there's, there's a certain amount of freaks who just want to cause trouble and they just want to be mean and they want to be spiteful and hateful and they're not going to change. But for a lot of people listening to this, they don't want to be that person. You know, they want to be fair, even though you told us earlier, fair doesn't exist. And it doesn't because there are these systemic things built in. Right, you know? right. So right. when he completely oh, yeah. dismissed it as corporate and political, I'm like, well, it is corporate and political. But it isn't completely corporate and political. Oh, I'd agree with that. I wouldn't completely dismiss it either. Yeah. And maybe neither would he, but he's got to make the point strong to make it stick. I mean, he's coming on. That's a good point on his point. He's got 10 minutes, and if he undersells it, you're not going to hear him at all. So he's got to oversell it so you hear it somewhat. Um, Yeah. Anyway. All right. Stuff I've been pondering through the commercial break. No, all legitimate. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. And now, your Rocky Mountain Chevy dealer's strong play of the weekend. Three and a half feet. To wrap it up here at the last, the Shambo putter behind the golf ball, little movement from his right to left, pulls the trigger to the cup, walks it in, and Bryson DeChambeau wins the 2020 Rocket Mortgage Classic, and a mad scientist with a method becomes the man on the PGA Tour. Leaning hard on the golf here, aren't you, Yak? Every Monday, the what, Chevy want, Strong play of the game. Do you want NASCAR? Minimal minimal options. You got European soccer. You got NASCAR. I guess now you have the NWSL if you want it. Yeah, do you want us to put NASCAR Basketball, in? July 30th, the Jazz play. Circle it. Hey, we got uh, MLS's back coming up this week. Uh, Sunday night, right? RSL's supposed to play Colorado, right, yeah. assuming they get to leave Colorado. All right, DJ PK, there is the Chevy Strong play of the game. Know it today at 4.50 on the big show. And you'll have a chance to win fabulous prizes. Uh, I had Jason Whitlock on earlier in the hour. We're going to have uh, Steve Cleveland on coming up uh, in the next segment. Uh, you know, PK, we're just talking about how complicated, you know, the intersection of sports and politics and race. And you talk about the ground level. Um, you know, what are you doing at the ground level? What difference are you making in somebody's life? And you talk about one-to-one interactions, you know, get to know somebody. Uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was definitely a product of his times. And he lived in San Diego during World War II. And of course, San Diego is right across the border. So there is, uh, there's plenty of racial tension uh, between you know, whites and blacks, which is the topic of the times now. Uh, but there in, in that era, well, in this one too, but certainly in that era, there was you know, between whites and Hispanics, but also between uh, white and Asians, especially people of Japanese descent, because my grandfather would have been ballpark mid to late 20s during World War II. And, uh, you know, blackout curtains at night, worried about getting bombed in a surprise attack. I mean, that was very much a very real stress of their everyday life. My dad would have been, uh, let's see, Pearl Harbor. He would have been three when Pearl Harbor happened. He would have been eight when the war ended. 
Um, and he would have had a younger brother who was born at the start of the war who was five. Uh, and so that was a product of my grandfather's times. And my, my, my grandfather could be very conservative and very combative on the topic of a race, the point of making my dad uncomfortable. Um, and my dad was pretty conservative in his own right, but much more liberal than my grandfather. And when we would hear my grandfather talk about race in terms that would be unacceptable now, uh, and then have that discussion with my dad later as little kids, um, dad would always say, you know, people are complicated and I don't always like what I hear and, you know, from your grandpa. And at the same time, he hired a guy, my, my grandfather owned a, uh, small business that Jason Whitlock was talking about. And it was a, he inherited from his dad when his dad died suddenly. Uh, he and my great uncle ran a family flower business and nursery store and landscaping business. And they had a handful of employees. I don't think they ever had more than 10 employees at a time. Um, but this was the business that sustained the family for decades. And, um, and they hired one, uh, one guy who was African-American who worked for him for years and had a good relationship with him. And he passed away. And my dad and my grandpa went to his funeral and turned out they were the only two white people at the funeral. And I'm like, that doesn't match up with what I'd seen and what I'd heard about my grandfather. And I can still remember dad like basically saying, people are complicated. And he had a one-on-one relationship. And when he talks about a group of people, you hear stuff you don't approve of. But then you have a one-on-one relationship and you get to know somebody. And there was a tremendous amount of respect for him, the way he treated his family and how hard he worked and what a good employee he was and how he helped them out. You know, it was a small business and there were times, you know, things were lean and, uh, and so they just felt they owed that to him going to that funeral, even though it isn't who you would think your grandfather was. Now, last week was la- no, it was two weeks. I guess it was a week and a half ago. We had David Locke on and he was talking about being uh, part of an interracial marriage. And he was talking about the loving court decision that legalized that back in the late 60s. And you were talking about how that was a different way for you to think about it. You hadn't really viewed it that way. And when I was about, uh, I would have been about 11, I think. Um, my dad's youngest brother got engaged to a woman who was second generation, uh, Japanese American. And he had met her in Hawaii and, uh, they live in Hawaii now. Um, she had grown up there, um, and her family had been there for a while. And, and so she comes over to meet the family and I had been really close to uncle Rick. He was about, uh, but 15 years older than me. So he was, I didn't have a big brother, but he was the fun uncle. He was much more fun than anybody else in the family. And so I know I'm going over there and he's going to get married and this is going to be his wife and we're going to meet him. And I'm all excited. And PK, I can tell you, even now, I can feel the vibe in the room when I walk into my grandparents' condo to meet him. And there was something off. There was something wrong. Race was in the air and I couldn't, I was 11 or whatever, 10, 11, 12, whatever I was. And I couldn't, uh, I couldn't put my finger on it. And I didn't fully understand it until I talked to my parents later. But, you know, it was in the air. People are complicated. And so I think as you listen to Jason Whitlock talk and you have these conversations with people you live with or you're friends with or you work with, it, it, isn't, it isn't always so cut and dried, the issue of race and what people say and how they react. And I can just look at my own grandfather you know, and peaks and valleys and stuff I would say, man, he was really good in that moment. And stuff I would say, yeah, he wasn't good in that moment at all. Um, and people, and it's not to say that it's a justification, you know, well, that, those were the times. Well, okay, help change the times. I mean, you can't, one person can't completely change it by themselves, but help change the times. So I want to totally write a pass there. Um, but, but people are complicated and I can just look at these moments I know in my grandfather's life, and you know he's 50 years older than me. There's certainly a bunch of moments I don't know in his life, but I can look at those moments, and you know you have a conversation like that with Jason Whitlock, and he talks about social media. Social media is not is very rarely nuanced. You know it is a blunt instrument, and that isn't the best way to deal with people's lives who are complicated. And I can just look at my grandfather's own life and see that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that struck me 
is that going to the funeral because he knew the guy. Let's call the guy Bob for just a random name. He knew Bob. Yeah. And Bob to him wasn't an African American. Bob to him was a person. I can remember. And he knew Bob. Yeah. And he liked Bob. And he respected Bob. Oh, big time. Yeah, that was my dad's yeah. point. And, and I can remember hearing that story and looking at my dad and my dad going on to the story like, that's your grandfather too. You know, yes, I, I know. I know what he thinks and I know what you think of what he thinks. And I totally get it. But this is this guy too. And he's just, you know, sometimes it's complicated. Um, but at the same time, I can remember. And this is another thing where I was, I was probably eight and it was, I can tell you this, PK, it was an ABA game because it was a red, white, and blue basketball. <laughs> and the ABA had a, an iffy TV contract. You know, they were on, they weren't on. Sometimes, you, you know, it was, uh, it's not like now <laughs> where, where all these games were on all the time. You know, there were just a few games here and there. But I can remember watching a game, and my grandpa didn't like basketball. He was a football baseball guy, which is partly San Diego's an outdoor culture, and the indoor sports all suffer. They all suffered uh, when I was a kid and earlier than that, you know, when he was growing up, uh, it's very much an outdoor community because of the weather. Um, but also, you know, the dominant presence of African-Americans without a helmet on because he loved football and there are plenty of African-American Charger players he loved. But, you know, that bugged him and he liked watching basketball. And I can still I could tell you the apartment. I could tell you where we were. And I read, why is grandpa being so pissy right now? And I can still hear my grandmother like, oh, knock it off and let him watch the game. <laughs> my grandmother snapping at him and it, it bugged him. He, I just think he didn't want to watch a bunch of black guys play basketball. And I was eight years old and I had a red, white and blue basketball at home. And dad had put a hoop up in the driveway that was only like seven feet tall, which was fine because I was only three and a half feet tall. I was into it. You know, and it's just all these snapshots. But it goes back to what you said about one on one. You got to build relationships and get to know people who are different than you. Yeah, agreed. All right, DJ and PK. Um, when we come back, Steve Cleveland, his weekly visit. Yuck. When you pick up the phone, is Steve going to say, there's still no games. What are we going to talk about? Does he say that every week? Not every week, but there's some variation of like, hey, we're about to find out what we're going to talk about. <laughs> He's always got stories, though. He's got, yeah. I mean, there's an endless supply of stories. I'm not hearing them twice. Well, he's drawn it from, what, 30, 40 plus years of college basketball coaching. So he's got a long list of people he's talked to, associated with, et cetera, that he can pull from. DJ PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.